Frontline family. Welcome here today. If you have your Bibles or you're on your Bible apps, go with me to Revelation chapter 3 and put your finger next to verse 7. For those of you who are here for the first time today, we are in a series called Revealing Jesus. It is a study on the book of Revelation, and the theme of the series is to reveal the magnificence and splendor of Jesus, even though this is such an apocalyptic book. It's all about Jesus, firstly, and secondly, to prepare us as the body of Christ, corporately and individually, for His return. Now, we're going to start looking at the church at Philadelphia today. But before we start doing that, I want to let you know that our study of the church at Philadelphia is going to stretch over two weeks, which means that we won't finish today. Now, the reason it's going to take us a bit longer than some of the other churches is firstly, because it is a church that Jesus only says good things about, so we need to take a close look at what that means. And secondly, for the sake of time, I have shortened my message today because after this message, we are going to give some important feedback on our youth camp that happened two weeks ago, and also some feedback on how your giving and acts of service continues to impact and bless people in Eldorado Park, as well as the new church that we are now assisting in Pakistan. And you know, church, it's very fitting, really, where we find ourselves in the study of these churches, I'm just amazed how God is even in the finest of details because the church we're going to be discussing today and next week is the type of church that goes beyond its own four walls and extends its hand of help and hope to those that need it the most. It's a church that is not as concerned about its own physical condition and safety as it is about the condition of the gospel going to all nations and supporting the fulfillment thereof. It is the church that has matured to the point that they realize, you know what, there is more spiritual need out there than there is in here. Why? Because it has remained faithful and true to the Word of God and to the commands of God. Now, there's so much more to that type of church that I've just alluded to now. So what I want us to do is to get right into it and read what Jesus says to this church, and then we'll get into the detail some this week and some next week. Let's have a look from verse 7. It says, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. The Lord says, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. And I want you to underline verse 10 if you've got your Bible or just highlight it on your Bible app where it says, Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. 
I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So just to cast our thoughts back to where we left off last time when we spoke about the church at Sardis, you would recall that it represented the age of the church known as the Reformation Age or the Protestant Reformation. Let's have a, look, a quick look together at the timeline of church history. So remember, it was in 1517 when Martin Luther nailed his thesis to the door at Wittenberg Castle where he listed the 95 problems that he had with the Roman Catholic Church. Right, he read the Bible for himself and could clearly see that what was being taught was not actually in the Bible at all. And Martin Luther was gripped by one verse in the Bible that says, Clearly no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith and Martin Luther recognized that righteousness didn't come from doing penance. It didn't come from seeking absolution. And it didn't come from, you know, paying money and buying indulgences. No, righteousness came and does come by trusting in Jesus Christ alone. And even though the Roman Catholic Church set out to kill him because of his so-called heretical views against their doctrines, the German princes stood up in protest for him and for his cause, and the Protestant Reformation officially commenced from that point onwards. These reformations have carried on until today in the form of many different denominations as we discussed in detail last time. But church, something else happened early in the mid-1700s. There was another shift in church history. If you have a look at that timeline again, in 1750, something significant happened, which is known on the timeline as the missionary or the evangelistic age and which, importantly, was the start of the First Great Awakening. Now, I'm not sure how many of you know the history of the American Revolutionary War, and I don't pretend to know a lot about American history myself, but the Revolutionary War actually started because of religious intolerance. I'm going to give you a very brief overview. In the mid-1700s, the United States of America was actually only 13 different colonies that was ruled by the British Empire. And during that time, a massive revival broke out throughout these colonies. There was this great spiritual awakening. And this revival stimulated the planting and growth of several Christian educational institutions throughout these colonies, such as universities like Princeton, Brown, Rutgers, and Dartmouth College, to name but a few. Now, I don't know if there are still Christian organizations today, but that's how they started out. In any case, as a result of the opposition and disagreement from the British who were in control of these colonies and the established churches during that period, it led to people choosing to resist that control and to have a broader acceptance of religious diversity and freedom and of the democratization of religious experience. All of this led to the Revolutionary War. All of this led to the colonies deciding that religious intolerance by the British Empire was something that they should rise up against. And so the American Revolution was birthed really as a result of the First Great Awakening. 
But here's what happened in this age of the church, represented by the church at Philadelphia. Now, you may or may not be aware of this, but there have basically been four great awakenings in church history. The first one started around 1750, where people like Jonathan Edwards, John and Charles Wesley, and George Whitfield were spreading the gospel in different parts of the world. As part of this first great awakening, for example, John Wesley logged more, which means that he covered more than 400,000 kilometers on horseback, preaching the gospel throughout Scotland and England. 400,000 kilometers as the gospel spread throughout these regions. It all started really happening and taking momentum in the mid-1700s. Then it gave way to the Second Great Awakening, which was from 1790 to 1840. There is an author named J. Edwin Orr who wrote about the Second Great Awakening in his book, The Rebirth of America. And he said, this is so interesting, he said, and I quote, In the early 1800s, people began to be converted 10,000 a week in New York City alone. The movement spread throughout New England. The church bells were bringing people to pray at 8 in the morning, 12 noon, and 6 in the evening. The revival raced up the Hudson and down the Mohawk, where the Baptists, for example, had so many people to baptize that they went down to the river, cut a big hole in the ice, and baptized them in cold water. Who's been baptized next week? Can we put some cold water in there, some big chunks of ice? Is that okay? <laughs> Just kidding. It goes on to say that in 1857, in one year alone, one, more than one million people were converted. The revival crossed the Atlantic, broke out in Northern Ireland and Scotland and Wales and England, South Africa, South India, and anywhere where there was an evangelical cause. It sent missionary pioneers to many countries. There was a revival and its effect was felt for 40 years. End quote. It eventually gave way to the, thir the Third Great Awakening, which was from 1855 to 1930. And as part of this Third Great Awakening, around 1905, you had the Great Awakening in Wales, known as the Great Welsh Revival. And there were a number of fascinating things that happened during that revival. There was a powerful move of God that swept across, across Welsh towns and valleys where entire communities were transformed. To the, to the instance that bars and gambling casinos closed due to lack of business. Prostitution ceased. Courthouses closed because there were no criminal cases to try. I don't, know if, I don't know if I believe this one, but they even said that they stopped playing rugby because they said it was too violent. I don't know about you, but I think rugby is quite a gentleman's game, right? All social indicators improved throughout Wells except for one, coal production. And why only coal production? Well, what they discovered is that the donkeys that would pull the coal out of the coal mines on those little coal carts refused to listen to the orders of the coal miners anymore. You know why? Because the coal miners got saved and stopped using foul language. It's a true story. The donkeys weren't responding to their new way of talking because they were like, come on, mule. Let's go, mule. Please, mule. You know, we're running a bit behind. We're behind schedule. Come on, you gracious little animal, you. 
And they wouldn't budge, they wouldn't move because they were used to them cussing and swearing at them all the time. The fourth great awakening was from around 1960 to 1980, which included crusades by Billy Graham, the Jesus movement with Calvary Chapel and Chuck Smith, and the charismatic movement of the 70s and 80s. And listen, church, coincidence or not, it happens about every 40 to 50 years, which means that the time is right for another great awakening. Amen? And maybe, just maybe, this time is going to break out in South Africa. I don't have to tell you that the world is getting crazy and crazier by the minute. That's obvious, right? And it's either time for a revival or it's time for the Lord to come back for His church. Or it's time for a revival as a precursor to prepare the world for the Lord's return. Right? And church, that is something that we should be, really be praying about. That we would witness the Holy Spirit fall in such a way that it would impact millions for the sake of the gospel. Amen? The church at Philadelphia became labeled as the missional or evangelical church because of its global influence in the gospel. Millions have been saved during this period of the church, and may God continue to do His saving work through His church, and may we be a part of it. Amen? May we be like the church of Philadelphia, where the Lord only has good things to say about us. And church, that's really what we're going to be focusing on over the next couple of weeks. Something that has really been pressing on my heart as we've been studying these churches is what type of church is Jesus really coming back for? And what does it mean to be a church that Jesus finds faithful despite what's, what's happening around them or the age that they're living in? What does it mean to be a church where if the Lord should return tomorrow, that it would be the type of church that He would rapture and that would walk together with Him in white robes, as He, as he points out here in these letters? And the cry of my heart is, Lord, show us what you want from your church here at Frontline, and how we would sincerely and reverentially represent you and only you in everything that we do. Amen? Whether it's from this pulpit or when the youth gather on a Friday evening, whether it's through all of our prayer and intercessory ministries, whether it's the Children's Church or the Connect Cafe, whether it's the Redeemed Girls or in all our serving ministries, and even when we interact with people out there face-to-face -face or on a missional basis, Lord, please show us what it means to represent the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Show us what it means to be faithful. Now, let me just say this from the get-go. I'm not talking about perfection here. Because no church is perfect, right? As a pastor once said, if you think that there is a perfect church, don't join that church because you're going to ruin it. It's obvious to all of us that there is no such thing as a perfect church for the obvious reason that there is no such thing as a perfect Christian. A church is a collection of imperfect Christians and is therefore in itself imperfect. There is no such thing as a perfect ministry leader, elder, or pastor. We all fall short of the absolute standard of holiness that God has set. But having said that, it is still possible to be faithful. It is still possible to be obedient, to be diligent, and to please the Lord as a congregation. It is possible to be a church that the Lord blesses because that church is genuinely faithful to Him 
and to his calling. And church, may we truly learn what it means to be a church like that. Not a perfect church, but a church that is faithful and obedient to what God has called us to do. And you know what, church, this is so important for us to remember and to take note of, because as we're drawing close to a close on what Jesus says to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, as we are drawing to a close on the church age, we are going to find that the last two churches that we are going to speak about, Philadelphia and Laodicea, one of them is the best church of the seven, and one of them is the worst. And these two churches are going to be here at the end of the church age. Which means that the final state of the church when Jesus returns is you have churches that are really good and faithful to what God has called them to, and churches that are really bad and unfaithful to God's calling, both of them existing at the same time. What do I mean by that? There are some missionally minded churches that exist in the final period of the church age who believe in the fullness of Scripture, who believe in the inherency of the Word of God, who believe in the resurrection and that Jesus is the only way to salvation, and believe that everything for life, morality, instruction, and godliness is found in the Bible. And then there's a liberal and progressive apostate church that denies the inherency of the Word of God, that denies the resurrection, that denies Jesus as the only way to salvation, and denies Scripture in general as the foundation of truth and morality. Let me tell you, and you probably already know this, but those two different types of churches exist today. We are already in the final period. Now, we don't know the day or the hour, but we can learn the patterns and the seasons that God is showing us in His Word. And of these churches, one of them is going to be raptured, and the other church is going in to the tribulation period. And did you notice what Jesus says to the church at Philadelphia? That verse I got you to underline. He says in verse 10, Since I've kept my command, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Now, I believe that this is one of the verses that proves why it is that the church, the real church at the time when Jesus returns, will be taken from the earth prior to the tribulation period. This is a proof text for us that we will be delivered from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world. This is Jesus saying, the reward for the church, the true followers of mine when I return, will be that they will escape the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole earth. Now, I don't know about you, but the study of the rapture is so fascinating to me, and we have so much more to say about that, but unfortunately... I'm going to leave you hanging for a few more weeks. Is that okay? Because we're going to discuss that in much greater detail when we get to chapter 4. For the sake of time, church, I'm going to leave you with this as I close. We're going to have a much closer look at the church of Philadelphia next week, the type of church that Jesus commends and blesses. After that, we're going to look at the type of church that Jesus is going to vomit out of his mouth. So we are going to have an in-depth look at what Jesus approves of and what he disapproves of. And during this study, I want to encourage you as you spend time alone with the Lord to pray together with me and together with the leadership of our church and ask the Lord, 
Lord, what does it mean to be a church or a Christian that you find faithful? And that if you were to return tomorrow, that we would be caught up in the clouds with you. What does it mean, Lord, to endure to the very end? And how can my life be a bright, shining light in a world that is getting darker and darker by the minute? And also pray with me that as we see things getting crazier around us, that the Lord would send another revival, another great awakening, so that we would witness the Holy Spirit fall in such a way that it would literally impact millions for the sake of the gospel. Earnestly pray for that. And pray that the Lord would allow us to be a part of it. Amen? Church, let us raise our expectations of a mighty move of God, even though it seems like evil is winning. Even though it seems like evil is having its way in every part of our world. Even though it looks like you know, things are falling apart and becoming more and more hopeless and helpless, let us pray for strength to stand firm and endure. Amen? And I want to leave you with a prayer to hold on to and to meditate on during this time as you pray for the Lord's work to be done in and through our church and even in and through our own lives. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, the Apostle Paul sends out this request for prayer right after he speaks to the church about standing firm. And he says to them, Finally, dear brothers and sisters, we ask you to pray for us. And he asked them to pray specifically for five things. He says, pray firstly that the Lord's message will spread rapidly and be honored wherever it goes, just as when it came to you. What is he praying for? He's praying for revival. Number two, pray also that we will be rescued from the wicked and evil people, for not everyone is a believer. Right? We know the type of world that we're living in right now. Number three, but the Lord is faithful. And because he is faithful, pray that he will strengthen you and guard you from the evil one. Number four, and we are confident in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we commanded you. Right? Pray that the Lord would give you strength and endurance to continue to do the things that he has commanded you in his word. And number five, pray that the Lord would lead your heart into a full understanding an expression of the love of God, the love of God that extends past yourself to the brethren, and the patient endurance that comes from Christ. May that be our prayer as the Lord leads us to become all that he has called us to be corporately and individually. Amen. Would you pray together with me for that cause? Can we thank the Lord for his word this morning, church?